Let's pray, shall we, as we come before God's Word tonight. Heavenly Father, please would you speak to our hearts and our minds by your Spirit tonight. And so by doing that, Father, we pray that we would see Jesus tonight, we would hear Jesus tonight, and we would love Jesus tonight. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, last week I tried to answer the question, why are churches regarded by secular social scientists as profound sources of social capital? How is it that scholars like Dr. Andrew Lee, an Australian, and Professor Robert Putnam from the US, both non-Christians, in fact, professing atheists, can believe that churches are unique sources of building strong community within themselves and then bridging across into the rest of society. I gave the completely unsophisticated answer last week that it comes down to knowing Jesus Christ. Not very sophisticated, not very socially scientific, but the answer Christians have been giving from the beginning, that knowing Jesus by definition changes everything and entails loving other human beings and developing flourishing community. After all, Jesus was the epitome of love. Love was his central command. We saw that last week on Sunday. Love was his life habit. And love is what drove him to the cross, laying down his life on behalf of us and that of the sins of the whole world. So knowing this Jesus leads all those who follow Jesus to a life of love. Well, that was last week. The rest of chapter 2, which I hope you have open in front of you because of these some tricky and complex verses, is not directly about love or community. So at one level, it might seem like a break in our series of flourishing, rooted in truth, to grow in love. But that's not true. You see, this passage is a crucial bridge between last week's passage about loving community And next week's passage, as we will see, which is full of some of the most striking calls to love in the Bible, perhaps even in the ancient world. So in between these two amazing passages about love and community, you get this text. And in this text, God shows us three marks of Christian community without which we cannot flourish. God's people flourish when they are secure in Christ, distinct from the world, and devoted to the teaching. Secure, distinct, devoted. We'll tackle each one of these in turn as the passage unfolds in its structure quite clearly before us. So firstly then, secure in Christ, verses 12 through 14. Scholars often puzzle about the poem that John springs upon us in chapter 2, Verse 12 that begins, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. This poem is not grammatically linked to anything that comes before or after in John's letter. John often has grammatical markers in his text to link different ideas and sections together, but not here. It's also highly poetic, unlike the rest of the letter. That's why it's set out in stanzas in your Bibles. 
It's also repetitive. You may have noticed, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men, and then he says, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. Some people have quipped that John was of an older age when he wrote this. I think that's a little bit unfair. The repetition may come, in fact, from the fact that John could be quoting a traditional hymn or creed at this point. It's structured like a hymn. Maybe the readers knew this. Perhaps this is a hymn that they would sing in their corporate worship when they gathered as God's people from time to time. And we all know how repetitive songs can be, right? Not the ones we've sung so far tonight, but sometimes songs just go on and on and on. So it will be a little bit like me saying, I write to you CBTB because of amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I write to you CBTB because once you were lost, but now you are found. I write to you CBTB because once you were blind, but now you see. You all know what I'm doing, right? And that may be what, may be what John is doing here. The poetic nature of it means that I think we're not to interpret it literally, children, fathers, young men, as if, John is writing particularly to dads, children, and young blokes. That seems to leave out a, a significantly large proportion of the Christian community. They're metaphors, as you would find in a poem. Children, the way John writes, children is, is John's usual way of addressing his congregation, Christian people. You see the same expression throughout the letter, chapter 2, verse 18, children. Fathers, referenced in verse 13 and 14, are those people who have been followers of Jesus for a long time. Male or female, it's simply a metaphor. Fathers of the faith. And young men are most likely recent believers. Again, male or female. You see, John's point isn't that there are different blessings for different stages of the Christian life. So kids get this and dads get that and young men something different. Now he's saying that all these blessings in Christ belong to all believers. Why? Well, because all are children of the faith, and so all have forgiveness. 2 verse 2 again. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. That's true of every believer. All Christians, right? That's not just some Christians. All are now, or have been in the past, young men, metaphorically, in the faith. So all have, verse 13 and 14, conquered the evil one. That's true of every believer. The poem just highlights an aspect of the Christian faith that would resonate with the metaphor of young men. Victory, triumph over evil. In the same way, fathers are said to have knowledge. You would associate knowledge with elders. But the fact that in verse 14 it says, Dear children, you also have knowledge. Make clear that John's point again has nothing to do with different stages of the Christian life. It's entirely to do with believers having all these blessings in Christ. For all believers have forgiveness of sins. For all believers know God the Father. All believers have conquered the evil one and have the word of God in them. But Simon, I'd still like to know what the poem's doing here without any warning. 
Well, I think that John realises that he has some very strong warnings to say either side of the poem. And so he breaks into a song of reassurance as a pastor of God's people. To say, yes, I have strong things to tell you, but I want you to know what you already have. I take a quick look at chapter 2, verse 11. A very strong warning before the hymn. For the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then come to the end of the hymn or the song in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. You see, between these two very strong warnings, John, the pastor of God's people, sings. And by singing, he reminds them of the blessings they already have in Christ Jesus. And so here is a lovely pastoral reminder for me, for the staff of Church by the Bridge, and to you. That the warnings of God Almighty are not a big stick threatening punishment if you don't do good, or even a big carrot bribing you with rewards if you do do good. No, these are warnings of the Father in heaven who loves you, who's forgiven your sin, who's brought you into his family as an adopted child and allowed you to conquer the evil one, with sin and death no longer your greatest enemy. You see, only when you are secure in Christ are you truly ready to hear the warnings of God. And John, being the pastor, knows that his congregation needs security. So I put it to you tonight. Are you feeling secure in Jesus? I mean, this day, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know you're in God's family by grace? Do you know you've conquered the evil one? Brother and sister, if you do, that is excellent. Praise God. Now, strap on your seatbelts for quite a warning. You see, children of the Father must bear His likeness, not the likeness of the world. That's my second point. We are to be distinct from the world. Verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Wow, that is some warning. Please don't for a second think that God hates the world and we should all go home tonight give away all our stuff and move to various monasteries around the area. John's readers know very well the opening page of the whole of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, this glorious hymn or song of praise about the world that God has created. And seven times God says it's good, it's good. Finishing with it's very good. His readers know this. John also knows that his readers have his gospel Because these letters almost certainly follow on from the gospel. And in the opening lines of John's gospel, John chapter 1, we're told this, that the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. The world 
is God's creation. And then John 3.16, from the author's same gospel, he writes, For God so loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So there's this strong thrust of teaching in the scriptures that is world-affirming, that is world-positive. But what we have in front of us in 1 John 2, verse 15, 16, 17, is the counterpoint. The counterpoint is that because of human rejection of the Creator, the world is in a very real sense, listen to this, enemy territory. The world is rebel-occupied territory. Imagine, if you will, just for a minute, that a hostile nation invades the Northern Territory of Australia. The Northern Territory would still be part of our beloved Australia, yes? But it would also be rebel-held territory simultaneously. And in a way, that's what John is saying. God's good world has been invaded by enemies. Three enemies, in fact. Did you see them? John names them. Chapter 2, verse 16. The lust of the flesh. What John means by this is physical pleasure. I don't think here only of sex, but it's a life driven by the pursuit of pleasure, clambering over everyone and anything to feel as good as you possibly can. Secondly, he says, it's the lust of the eyes. Please don't hear, just think of what you look at on a computer screen. I think our minds often go to that sort of idea. But lust of the eyes connotes here uh, your ambition, our greed. That which you look at and say, I want that at all costs. And third, the kind of culmination of the first two is the pride of one's lifestyle. And this is the arrogant self-satisfaction that goes with achieving your pleasures and your ambitions. And John says these are enemies. Now, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course, pleasure and material possessions are God's good gifts, yeah? And there are so many New Testament texts I could take you right take you to right now to relieve your conscience. But John wants us to know that when pleasure and ambition and self-satisfaction become primary in our lives, not love for God and love for other well, then we've entered rebel-held territory. And I wouldn't be teaching God's word faithfully today if I let us off the hook at this point. You see, the fact that some of us can spend enormous amounts of money on the annual, regular, overseas holiday, a major renovation, an enormous refurbishment, or the weekender, and then balk at spending big money on the poor, on our missionaries, on caring for vulnerable people in our world and beyond for our church, that should raise a question. It really should raise a question. It is true that we are to love the world, but it's equally true that we are at war with the world spiritually. You think of that famous C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity. He writes, Christianity agrees that this universe is at war. 
It thinks that it is a civil war, a rebellion. We are living in that part of the universe occupied by the rebels, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say has landed in the skies and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, he writes, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. I love that. Here we are tonight, listening to 1 John, listening to the very voice of God, the inspired word of God, the secret wireless. And John reassures us that we are secure in Christ, forgiven, adopted, conquerors. And then he warns us to be distinct from the world. One last crucial mark of Christian community. We are to be devoted to the teaching. Verses 18 through 27. In 1 John 2 verse 18 and following, John states explicitly what has been lurking beneath the surface of the letter from the very beginning. People who were once members of his churches are now false teachers and influencing people in these churches to walk away and abandon Jesus. Look at verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belong to us. And then have a look at verse 22. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This is not the last thing that John has to say about the Antichrist. Flick over with me to chapter 4, verse 1, where we hear a little bit more about the Antichrist. Verse 1, chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that he is coming, and he is already in the world now. False teachers. Antichrist. We don't know everything these false teachers believed, or what, why they believed it, but from various references in this letter and the other two letters by John, we can work out a few things. It's almost certainly that these... False teachers were an early form of what later became known as the Gnostics. I've mentioned this before. They relegated, downplayed, almost pushed aside the earthly ministry of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. They viewed him simply as a vehicle of spiritual knowledge and light and secrets that connect you to the divine. Without a focus on personal sin, on love being the guiding light of our lives and on atonement for sin the greatest work of Jesus. You know, we've got texts from the Gnostics written about 30 years after John wrote this letter, but when John writes the letter, they're already at work in the world. And verse 22 is critical because it kind of defines what their big idea, their message was. Verse 22, who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, or alternatively, the Christ? 
Don't for a second though think that the Gnostics didn't have a place for Jesus. They had a big place for Jesus. But they rejected his status as the king. The king who came from glory into world in human flesh to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies about a king who would come to rule the world on God's behalf, the Christ, the Messiah. What's fascinating, I only realised this late in preparation, is there's a real connection here between the, the big idea of John's gospel. If you come back with me to John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, the same author tells us there that the entire purpose of why he wrote his account of Jesus' teaching and healing and trial and death and resurrection and all of his appearances, why, why he wrote that. John chapter 20, verse 30, 31. Jesus performed many other signs, it says, in the presence of his disciples that aren't recorded in this book. But what is written in John's Gospel, what is written in the Gospel, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in His name, have life, eternal life. And then you flick back or come across to John, his first letter, and chapter 2, verse 22, Who is the liar? if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, the very punchline of John's Gospel is the very thing that these false teachers deny. And he goes on in verse 22, This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father, but he who confesses, he who believes the Son has the Father as well, is in fellowship, in community with God. The Gnostic Gospels, written decades after John, simply used Jesus as a mouthpiece to say whatever they want him to say. The only thing you get of Jesus in the Gnostics is that he's risen and then he comes and proclaims a whole random bunch of secrets that you would never have guessed or known from the earthly life recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. What the Gnostics do is they completely push aside the fleshly life of Jesus as seen in John's Gospel. And all they do is put words into his mouth about how your spirit can connect with the higher spirit. About how the Old Testament God is a liar and capricious and all the prophecies about a male, human Jewish Messiah coming are false. You see, superficially they revered Jesus, but in reality they just put words in his mouth, whatever they wanted him to say. You know, and our Muslim friends do exactly the same thing. I mean, I mean no disrespect at all to them, but when your Muslim friends, when my Muslim friends say, we love Jesus, yes, he was a great prophet, he taught Islam... All they're doing is taking the word or name Jesus and kind of putting on his lips whatever they want him to say. Because the Jesus of six centuries before the Quran came said that he was the Son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for the sins of all people. And those things are rejected in Islam putting words into the mouth of Jesus. 
And there are secular versions of this, yeah? The Jesus who just accepts everyone and never proclaimed judgment. What have you done there? Well, you've taken the name Jesus. I like the name Jesus and you've just put words into his mouth. Well, the Jesus who is just a great teacher with some interesting insights about life, but not the Lord over all things, including us. We're just doing exactly what the Gnostics do. But John is saying that is a denial of Jesus Christ, and the consequences are enormous. You forfeit eternal life. So what is the antidote to the Antichrists? Well, it's what John calls the anointing. I wonder, did you puzzle over this when John referred to it or when it was read out in loud? Come with me to chapter 2, verse 20. John starts his sentence by saying, But, and that's really just a contrast to, in contrast to the false teachers, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. And then in verse 27, The anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you don't need Him You don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as he has taught you, remain in him. Well, the anointing here is clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit poured out on all believers when they come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But why does John call it an anointing instead of just calling it him the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is invisible in the English, but clever and spectacular in the Greek. It's about to get a little bit nerdy, but given that it's certain that John intended that that this be the case, I think it'd be disappointing if you didn't spot it. The words anointing, Christ, and antichrist are all forms of the one Greek verb. Creo is the verb, which means anoint. The common noun of creo is chrisma, anointing, the word that John uses in our text. The proper noun is Christos, the anointed one, Christ or Messiah. And the other proper noun is antichristos, those who are opponents to the anointed one. You got that? Soak up the grammar a little bit for a while. It's all coming from the one Greek word. And when this letter was read out aloud in the congregation, they would have heard John saying, Chrisma, Christos, Antichristos, Chrisma. It's just so obvious what he's doing. His point is that there is such an intimate connection between having the Holy Spirit and believing that Jesus is the Christ. That you could never, if you have the Holy Spirit, deny that Jesus is the Christ, yeah? We received our anointing, Chrisma, when we came to believe in the anointed one, Christos. Therefore, it would be absurd if someone would think that if they have the Chrisma, and for them to be an anti-Christos. In other words, and this is very important to spot, because lots of people get misled by this text. John isn't getting all sort of subjective and wishy-washy and saying that, you know, if you have the Holy Spirit, he will guide you magically into all kinds of theological study. No. He's saying that the anointing you received at your conversion, when you got saved, 
is so closely associated with the anointed one, the Christ, that it would be crazy for anyone with the anointing to say that Jesus is not the anointed one and therefore side with the Antichrist. And so when John says in, chapter, in verse 27, you don't need anyone to teach you, he's not at all referring to ongoing teaching as he's doing in this letter. It'd be quite contradictory, wouldn't it, for John to write this letter and then to say, don't really read this, don't use this for teaching, wouldn't it? Now what he's referring to is the teaching that they have already received. That Jesus is the Christ. The teaching of Jesus' gospel, which was the root, the foundation of their faith from which they were to grow and love. It is that teaching in the past. And verse 24 makes it absolutely clear, doesn't it? What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you, the gospel. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. It's not about future teaching. It's everything to do with the teaching you've already got about Jesus being the Christ. They've already been schooled by the Christma, the anointing, to believe in the Christ. And so therefore no one, not John, not the false teachers, not me, not any other Bible teacher, no one has the right to go back over the foundation of the eyewitnesses. And it's the very last clause of verse 27 it really provides the summary for the whole situation. Just as he has taught you, remain in him. Again, the grammar is critical. The tenses of these words, vital. Remain is present tense. Aorist, in fact, just to kind of reinforce how important this is. Remain in him. Now. Taught is past tense. What you heard from the beginning, the gospel, Christ, come from glory, lived, loved, died, risen, ascended. Remain in him. You see the point. You have been taught in the past. The roots of the truth have been buried deep in the ground. Now remain in him, rooted in the truth, to grow in love. Let me conclude. Brothers and sisters, if we are not secure in Christ and so rooted in the truth, our Christian community will quickly become all about works and performance. If you're insecure as a Christian, you're not sure if you've overcome evil, you're not sure if your sins are forgiven, you're not sure if you're at one with God the Father, your life will become all about performance and fast become, if not already, a performance religion where you try harder and harder and harder to climb the stairway to heaven. And that is the enemy of Christian community. I said moralistic religion about two weeks ago is the greatest enemy of Christianity. 
of loving community. If we become a works performance based religion, then suddenly we'll have in our midst those who are superstars of the faith, those who are also rands, and those who are failures. There are religions in the world, there are people who follow these kind of ideas in our workplaces all the time. But Christianity is not like that. And so John says in our passage, I've got warnings for you, dear children. But I want you to know first and foremost that your sins are forgiven. You are one with your Father. Young men, you've overcome evil. And he's saying, all Christians, you have those blessings. You've got to be secure in Christ. And to be perfectly honest, as I was thinking through how to land this sermon on Monday last week, I was thinking that some of you, in this building, probably need me just to stop right there. Yeah? You, you don't need any more practical application to get you through tonight and this week. All you need to know, all God wants you to know this day, is that you are secure in Christ. Forgiven. Adopted. Victorious. And therefore you have eternal life. But brother and sister, if you know you are secure, if we are not distinct from the world at Church by the Bridge, our community is just going to blend in and disappear. We'll just look the same as everyone else. Just another club, another group of people, like a Probus club, the running club, the triathlon club, the bowls club, the RSL club. We'll just be the God-botherer club, as someone mentioned to me during the week. Just people. Absolutely, of course we are just people, humans, like everyone else, with the same sins, the same weaknesses, the same foibles, the same hang-ups. But there is something far more important about us than identification with the world. It's Christ-likeness. Where we come together to love the world how Christ loved the world, not how the world loves the world. How did Christ love the world? Firstly, he loved the world, he came into the world, he saw it as a good gift of God to be received with thanks. But Jesus also saw it as enemy-occupied territory. Just read the Gospels to see that. And there's a dimension of the Christian life that says that the world of the Financial Review, the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Woman's Day, MasterChef, Australian Idol, Game of Thrones, Offspring, Sex in the City, is rebel-held territory. And we are at war with that spiritually. And finally, we must be devoted to the teaching. If our Christian community is not radically devoted to the teaching of Jesus and living lives of obedience to the teaching of Jesus and that of the apostles, we should just pack up and go home. There's nothing else that will bind us together long term other than the teaching of Jesus' life, death and resurrection and the implications of that for our lives of love. Without that, we have absolutely nothing. So if anyone, myself, another member of staff, another preacher, another high fruit leader, should they stray from the teaching, I command you, I plead with you, 
clobber them with your anointing. Secure in Christ, distinct from the world, devoted to the teaching. Secure, distinct, devoted. Without those three marks, God's people will not flourish. Let's pray. Father, reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1, that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, that in him we have forgiveness, adoption, and we have victory over sin and death. We are free. Father, may the freedom that you have given us in Christ mean that we live lives of radical obedience to you and your word. And so be men and women distinct from the world uh, for the sake of winning the world. And Father, we be devoted to your teaching because we see that in your word is life, blessing, Father, make us and our community at Church by the Bridge a blessing to those around us. Father, we thank you for the confidence we have in you, the assurance we have in self, salvation in Christ. Help us never to forget it. Father, help us to remain in Jesus for the sake of his glory and for those we might win for him. In Jesus' name. Amen.